Welcome to the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and professor of psychology at CIIS, Dr. Brent Courtright, talks about his work at the cutting edge of neuroscience, clinical psychology, and brain health. His best-selling book, The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, examines new discoveries in neuroscience and uncovers just how much control we have over improving our brain function. This talk, which brings together research material scattered across obscure scientific journals to present simple, meaningful steps to enhance cognitive function, was recorded on October 15, 2015, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, on our website, and on Digital Commons. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. So the name of the book is The Neurogenesis, Diet and Lifestyle. And probably most of you know what neurogenesis is. Neurogenesis is the process of making new brain cells, the generation of new neurons. And it used to be thought it was considered as gospel up until the late 1990s that our brain stopped growing new brain cells once we hit our early 20s. And after that, it was just one slow, gradual die-off. But then they discovered that, no, actually, the brain makes new brain cells throughout our entire life. For a long time, they didn't know what the meaning of that was, what the significance was. And just in the last few years, it's become clear that our rate of neurogenesis is the most important biomarker for health and brain health in particular that you've never heard of before. So I think of the discovery of neurogenesis and particularly the significance of neurogenesis as a game changer that we live in a very neurotoxic world, a world that in many ways assaults our brain. We haven't known this until just the last few years. So just about everybody's brain is operating well below capacity. This is big stuff, I think, really big stuff. It's so new that almost nobody knows about it. So, so many of the symptoms of what we think of as normal aging turn out to be lifestyle problems, not really inherent in the aging brain itself. And I got into this really through consciousness work. I've been involved in the psycho-spiritual field of transpersonal psychology for a long time. And so I've been involved in the human potential movement, in this view that there's much more that we are and that we can be than we walk around thinking we are. It's a little bit, I think, like um, 
like this idea of neurosis. When I was in graduate school, there was psychotic and there was uh, neurotic and there was normal. And now there is psychotic and there is borderline and there is normal neurotic. Right? The best we can hope for is neurotic, the best. But neurotic is still a pretty impaired functioning. There's still a lot of potential that's lost in that. And psychotherapy tries to release that, to free that up. Well, it's very similar with the brain. That our brain is capable of much more than we ever really knew. In fact, we still don't really know what the upper limits are. So we think we're walking around with basically a healthy brain. And we kind of are. But it's really a brain that is, um, has been eroded, has been degraded. Again, there's so much that's neurotoxic. There's so much that we didn't know about, we don't know about, mostly. We've all stumbled into this innocently. We've all picked up habits, <clears throat> dietary habits, emotional habits, mental habits, spiritual habits without really even knowing about it. And we haven't known until now, right? Human beings in their present form have been around for about 200,000 years. And we didn't really understand the significance of the brain until the last probably couple hundred. And we didn't know there was anything you could do to actually improve brain function until a few years ago. And mostly this is scattered in different neuroscience journals. Um, so this book tries to bring that together. There was this one experiment where they wanted to see if they could jumpstart neurogenesis. It became clear that the rate of neurogenesis is hugely important. Right? So you read on the description, low rates of neurogenesis, that is low rates at which the brain is making new brain cells, are associated with memory problems, with cognitive decline, with anxiety, with stress, and with depression, and with lowered immunity. And high rates of neurogenesis are associated with just the opposite, with rapid learning, rapid problem-solving, cognitive enhancement, robust emotional resilience, protection against stress, anxiety, and depression, and heightened immunity. As it became clear that our rate of neurogenesis is hugely important, they did an experiment to see if they could increase their rate of neurogenesis. And so they gave mice a holistic treatment. That's not how what they called it. That's my words for it. But they, they gave what they called an enriched environment, consisting of things like really good food, running wheels to exercise on, um, lots of novel environments to explore, nesting materials, um, other friendly mice to play with and mate with. And they discovered that they could increase their rate of neurogenesis by five times. And that these heightened neurogenesis mice had big cognitive advantages over their normal neurogenesis rate peers. 
and big emotional advantages as well. So neurogenesis happens in a particular part of the brain called the hippocampus. So the brain is an interesting structure. So it's, it's this enclosed, limited space. It's enclosed in this bony, sharp structure, the skull. And it's a little bit like a small apartment problem. If you've got a small apartment, things you bring in need to be equalized with things that you take out. Otherwise, you just get overwhelmed. So <clears throat> it's the same with the brain. It's like, how do you have a brain that is, on the one hand, pruning unused connections that aren't necessary, but also makes space for new connections to form so that new learning can happen, and the birth of new brain cells? All of that. It's a Goldilocks problem. We need just the right amount. And the hippocampus solves this problem with extraordinary precision. So the hippocampus is this crescent moon-shaped structure in the brain. And part of it is involved with emotion regulation. It moves into that part of the brain, into the limbic system, particularly the regulation of anxiety, stress, and depression. And the other part of the crescent moon moves into the cognitive part of the brain and also spatial, spatial learning, spatial relations. So the body and the mind. And this part also is involved in the processing of new memories. So the processing of new memories is hugely important for the self. In fact, our whole, the foundation of the self really is memory. And, and we see how important it is in Alzheimer's. So in Alzheimer's, the hippocampus is massively attacked. There's a loss of a lot of hippocampal neurons in Alzheimer's. And what happens is that the person has difficulty forming new memories. So this part of the hippocampus that makes new memories, it processes new memories. It doesn't store them, but it processes new memories. It allows you to then learn from experience. So in Alzheimer's, we say that the person can't make new memories, they can't access their memories, they can't process memories. The whole sense of self begins to just slip away at that point. Emotion regulation goes down the tubes, the person becomes impulsive. It's like memory is the linchpin for the self. And so to have a sharp mind means having good memory capacity. So with these mice that increased their rate of neurogenesis by five times, they also had a hippocampus which was one-sixth larger than their peers. That's a lot of brain power there. That's a lot. And what they discovered is that it was this total environment that did it. Right? It was a holistic approach. That's the approach of this book. It's a holistic approach to cognitive enhancement, to brain enhancement, and to protection against Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. So by holistic, I'm coming very much from the <clears throat> Sri Aurobindo integral yoga, Dr. Chaudhary integral philosophy stream here. So body, heart, mind, spirit, every level of our being, we experience it all through the brain. Everything we experience, we experience through the brain. Every physical sensation, 
every emotion, every thought, every spiritual state we experience through the brain. So a low-quality brain means a low-quality existence. A high-quality brain means a high-quality existence. I've always felt, as a psychologist, that psychology is way too important to be left to psychologists. Everybody needs to know about it. It's really important stuff. It's the same with neuroscience. Neuroscience is way too important to be left to the neuroscientists. We all need to know this stuff. And neuroscience has just kind of exploded in the last, um, I don't know, 10 years particularly, 10, 15 years. Neuroimaging studies, our capacity to see what's going on in the brain has just um, developed hugely. Now, to to build a high-end house, you need good quality materials. You need to use high quality materials. You don't want to use rotting wood or decaying wood. And it's similar with the brain. To build a high quality brain, we want to use good materials. And we want to avoid poor materials. So this is a two-pronged strategy. We want to stop or minimize what is neurotoxic. And we want to do those things, those activities, ingest those nutrients that increase our rate of neurogenesis and are neurohealthy. So the book goes into, there's a chapter on body, there's a chapter on heart and emotional stuff, There's a chapter on mind, there's a chapter on spirit, and there's a whole chapter by itself on diet, because diet is an extraordinarily important part of all this. So there's much more in the book than we can go into here, but I'd like to convey some of the important points around diet and touch on all of these things, really. So the brain is something that's always uh, in movement. This analogy of the brain being a computer is really a terrible analogy because a computer is a solid state thing. But a brain is always moving. It's always under construction. It's always pruning. It's always extending. When you walk into a new room like this, your brain is changing. Every new experience changes your brain. Your brain is like um, a giant amoeba. It's just continually feeling out the environment that it's in and adapting to it, learning. So to build this high-quality brain, we want to give it the best possible materials. And the brain is made up of about two-thirds fat. And so one thing we want to do is give it a lot of good, healthy fats. And we want to not give it unhealthy, bad fats. And I'll get into the difference in just a second. So of this two-thirds of the brain that's fat, one-third of that fat is DHA. Now, DHA is one of the three omega-3 fatty acids. You've all heard about omega-3s, right? There's ALA there's EPA, and there's DHA. And DHA is by far the most important. 
we want a lot of DHA in our diet. When the human brain exploded 200,000 years ago, it's associated with eating fish, having access to fish, and having access to those kind of omega-3s. So <clears throat> there was this one experiment with monkeys, where they gave monkeys a one set of monkeys, a low omega-3 diet, and they gave another set a high omega-3 diet. And they looked at their brains. And the brains of the low omega-3 diet monkeys were very simple, undifferentiated brains. But the brains of the high omega-3 monkeys were very complex, richly differentiated brains, almost like humans. Really quite extraordinary. For how long? Good question. I don't know. But it was enough for them to kind of grow up. So I imagine a couple of years. <clears throat> Getting a good amount of DHA in your diet is probably the most single most important thing you can do for your brain every day. Most people can handle four, five, six grams a day of fish oil. Most people do it through fish oil. But if you do it through fish oil, you want a, a fish oil that has a high DHA content to it. And some fish oils have a low DHA content. And you also want it molecularly distilled. Otherwise, it's likely to have mercury in it. And mercury is one of the most potent neurotoxins known. We don't want mercury. <clears throat> some people are vegetarian and don't want to do fish oil. Um, and have been told to do flax oil instead, or chia seed. It turns out that is not a great idea. So flax oil has a lot of ALA in it. And the body does convert some ALA to DHA, something like 5% or 7% in healthy 18-year-olds. And it goes downhill from there. It's very inefficient at doing that. So they've looked at people who have tried to raise blood levels of DHA and brain levels of DHA through supplementation of flax oil, and it hasn't been successful. They haven't been able to raise. So if you're vegetarian, the only way to do it so far is through seaweed. There's a seaweed form of DHA that you can do. And that is a form of EPA, and EPA does convert to DHA at a pretty good rate. Um, <clears throat> but fish oil is probably the way that most people will go. And some people can do this through eating fish, but you've got to eat a fair amount of fish. They did one study where they looked at people who ate fish one to three times a week, and they found out that they had 16% more gray matter, more neurons, in the higher processing centers of their brain. Unless they ate fried fish, in which case there was no difference between them and normal brains. So that gets us into this idea of what is a healthy fat and what is an unhealthy fat. So an unhealthy fat is an oxidized fat. Oxida oxidation happens through heat or exposure to light or to oxygen. And when it oxidizes, it, it becomes rancid. And when we ingest that, when we eat oxidized fats, 
and take it into our body, into the bloodstream, those oxidized fats then oxidize the cholesterol in our bloodstream. And it's that oxidized cholesterol that creates heart disease, atherosclerosis. And it also creates inflammation. And inflammation is one of the big poisons of the brain. There's so many things in our environment, so many foods we eat, that are inflammatory. Not good. Inflammation is known as the silent killer. It's hugely involved in Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is an inflammatory disease at one level. So we don't want oxidized fats, which means we don't want to cook in vegetable oil. Vegetable oil will oxidize, and it'll oxidize the other fats that it's cooked, cooking with. We've all been told to use vegetable oils for the past 50 years, right? Probably some of you know this history, but in the 1950s, a physician named Ansel Keys did some research and came to the conclusion that dietary fat and cholesterol are bad for you and create heart disease, and that we should switch to a low-fat diet that is high-carbohydrate. And it now turns out that that science was bad, that his science was bad. He was actually cherry-picking the data. But also, this failed to make this differentiation between oxidized fat and non-oxidized fat, that the real culprit is oxidized fats. That's what wreaks havoc in our bloodstream, And if it wreaks havoc in our bloodstream, it wreaks havoc in our brain, right? Inflammation chews up the inside of your blood vessels. And in the brain, the brain gets 20% of your blood. So it's rich with blood vessels. If your blood vessels are going downhill, your brain is going downhill. So we want to stay away from oxidized fat. So we want to cook not with vegetable oil. We want to cook with coconut oil or with butter, or with ghee, clarified butter, or with lard, or with tallow. These saturated fats have a high smoke point. They don't oxidize at big temperatures. Um, Vegetable oils, even olive oil, better on your salad, not cooked with. Um, Avocado oil, I'm not sure about when it's cooked. That's a good question. High smoke point, okay, that's good to know. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Coconut oil. Coconut oil is really great. It's fantastic, yeah. Um, So what are healthy fats? Healthy fats are things like avocados, nuts, grass-fed beef, pastured chicken, pastured dairy of all kinds, um, pastured yogurt, full-fat yogurt, not non-fat yogurt or low-fat yogurt. You know, we have all been conditioned to think fat is bad, and it's hard to get past that conditioning. It takes a while to actually see that fat is good and that fat actually doesn't make you fat, right? It's carbohydrates that are responsible for this obesity epidemic and this heart disease epidemic that's been happening for the last 50 years. That Ansel Keys' flawed research has produced, in trying to stop heart disease, it's had this ironic, paradoxical effect of increasing heart disease 
Heart disease is the number one killer in America. Um, it kills more than one in three. Current trend lines continue, it'll be one in two. We'll have everybody in this room will have a 50% chance of dying of heart disease. It's huge. And everything that's been done in terms of diet has only contributed to it. That what a high carbohydrate diet does is it produces extra insulin, and extra insulin produces a lot of damage on many different levels to the bloodstream, to the blood vessels. Um, let me finish with fats and come back to carbohydrates because this carbohydrate and uh, fat thing is, is quite big. So we want grass-fed beef as opposed to regular commercial conventional beef. So one thing that grass-fed beef has is an ideal ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids. So omega-3s, you know, are great. We want them, we need them. We also need a certain amount of omega-6 fatty acid. Omega-6 is responsible for our inflammatory response. We don't want to have a lot of inflammation. We don't want to have chronic inflammation. But we want to be able to mount an inflammatory response to fight an infection, um, to kick out a disease. Inflammation is good when it's short-term and acute. It's part of the body's defense. So for most of our history, we've had an omega-3, omega-6 ratio of 1 to 1 or 1 to 2. Grass-fed beef has an omega-3, omega-6 ratio of 1 to 1.65. Just about perfect. Conventional beef has a ratio of about 1 to 5. So it's very inflammatory. So many people are saying, don't eat meat because it's inflammatory. Well, yeah, it is. There's so little research that makes the distinctions now as science advances, that takes into account, for example, grass-fed beef from conventional beef. Same with pastured chicken um, and also wild fish, um, as opposed to uh, farmed fish, which has lower omega-3s and much more antibiotics, PCBs, mercury, etc. The other big thing is carbohydrates and sugar. A high sugar diet will cut your rate of neurogenesis in two. Isn't that astonishing? It'll cut your rate of neurogenesis by 50%. That's just like amazing. When you think about the average diet of the average American kid who starts out the day with what? Sugar frosted flakes, orange juice. It's all sugar. It's all bad fat. You can't get a good brain like that. It's not possible. So <clears throat> it's estimated right now that 80% of the American population has some degree of insulin resistance. Insulin resistance means we've had way too many carbohydrates and our body just can't take it. <clears throat> you know, the idea behind a lot of the paleo thinking is that our bodies were meant to eat a lot of fats, a moderate amount of protein, and a little bit of carbohydrate. It just wasn't available in the natural world. A little bit maybe at the end of summer, some berries to put on some weight to get us through the, the winter. But when we eat carbohydrates, we put on excess weight. Right? If you want to fatten up cows, you give them grain. Grain-fed cows have poor fatty acid profiles and they've got a lot of fat. So, 
insulin resistance and our cognitive abilities go hand in hand. So with insulin resistance, we get higher levels of insulin in the body because our cells are making fewer insulin receptors. So the body produces more insulin to get the same response. There's also higher blood sugar levels, higher blood glucose levels. So glucose is not a good thing in your system. It, it produces different kinds of glycation reactions or aging. One theory of aging is that it's a process of glycation where sugar binds with protein and cause cross-linking. So like the browning you see in a, when chicken are being roasted, the browning of the chicken, that's a glycation process. It's happening through the sugars. <clears throat> so what a high sugar, a high carbohydrate diet does is it produces a lot of these glycation end products, and it's also known as ages, advanced glycation end products, that begin to damage the brain. And in fact, Alzheimer's is now being called type 3 diabetes by many people. That Alzheimer's also involves a failure of sugar metabolism, a disorder of sugar metabolism. So, if you're... Um, insulin resistance is fine, then go ahead and eat carbohydrates. It's fine. But sooner or later, you're probably going to have to cut down. Because if you look, if you go into a supermarket, you see carbohydrates everywhere. Sugar drinks everywhere. Um, <clears throat> the brain wasn't made to handle this. The body wasn't made to handle this. And the result is the diet, diabetes epidemic, the obesity epidemic, um, the heart disease epidemic and the Alzheimer's epidemic. These are all lifestyle issues. And they're, it's also very related to brain function. So you can track cognitive decline and blood sugar levels, insulin resistance, and they track each other just about perfectly. So one test that's very helpful for everybody to have when you go for your yearly physical is called a hemoglobin A1C. And what the hemoglobin A1c measures is your blood sugar for the past three months. It's like an average of your blood sugar. And if it's at all elevated, you would be advised to somehow try to bring it down. And the way to bring it down is to reduce your carbohydrate intake. So that's kind of the big picture in terms of diet. To move to healthy fats, to leave off unhealthy fats, which are really damaging and a moderate amount of protein and carbohydrates as our body can take it. There's no one right way for everybody. It depends on your particular body. Another nice test to have done is called the high sensitivity CRP, C-reactive protein, which is a general inflammatory marker. So if you have high levels of inflammation, it means that all the systems of your body are being attacked, that your, your, your body is under assault continually. Even gingivitis, gum disease, produces high uh, inflammatory markers. Not a good thing. People have much higher rates of heart attack who have gum disease. So that's the big picture. But then there's a lot of very specific nutrients that we can take that increase our rate of neurogenesis. And again, this is brand new. This has just been discovered the last few years. So omega-3 fatty acids will increase the rate of neurogenesis by 40%. Very big response there. 
Um, <clears throat> turmeric, the yellow in curry spice, turmeric, or curcumin is the active ingredient in it. Very powerful neurogenesis stimulator. Blueberries are fantastic. Blueberries are like miracle grow for the brain. The brain just starts exploding in new neurons with blueberries. Um, green tea is another wonderful thing. But the problem with green tea is it also comes with caffeine. So caffeine is one of these mixed things with the brain. So there's short-term benefits from caffeine, short-term cognitive benefits in terms of memory, short-term memory. But long-term, caffeine decreases our rate of neurogenesis. I hate to say this. Um, I know. Um, <laughs> there have been... I, yeah, there have, this has been experiments done over and over and over. Neuroscience labs are run by graduate students who thrive on caffeine. It's like this experiment has been tried so many times hoping to show that caffeine will produce high rates of neurogenesis. And they finally conclude that even the smallest biologically effective dose decreases neurogenesis. And they report this with great sadness. Um, what? So anything that you can feel, in other words, is going to have a long-term effect of decreasing your rate of neurogenesis. So it's mixed. The polyphenols in coffee are good for your brain. Similarly, the polyphenols in green tea are great for your brain. But if you can do decaf, or you can do like a green tea extract, what we want ideally is like 10 to 15 cups of green tea per day of the EGCG. But we don't want that much caffeine at all. So they actually have caffeine-free green tea extracts, like a little capsule that's like 10 to 15 cups, which is great. Now the book goes into like 25 or 30 different nutrients that increase our rate of neurogenesis. Let me tell you just two others. One is hesperidin. Hesperidin is a bioflavonoid found in citrus fruits. And in the same way that blueberries increase our rate of neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons, and omega-3s increase the rate, about half of those new brain cells die pretty quickly. They're pruned. Unless we do other things, such as hesperidin. So hesperidin keeps new brain cells alive. That's its main function, is to keep new brain cells alive. So we need to do a lot of different things. It turns out that some things increase the rate of neurogenesis. Some things increase the survival of new neurons. Other things increase the rate of neurogenesis on one part of the hippocampus, some on the other part of the hippocampus, some along the entire hippocampus, but most things we just don't know. And so it's good to have a broad spectrum strategy here. So diet is hugely important, but there's other things. Body, heart, mind, spirit. And again, it's, it's all of them working together that increase the rate of neurogenesis and keep these new brain cells alive to almost 100% survival rate. So when it comes to the realm of the body, one of the best things we can do is exercise. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of exercise. All exercise is good for the body. Right? Yoga, great for the body. Strength training, Good for the body. 
aerobic exercise is good for the body. But when it comes to our rate of neurogenesis, the only exercise that seems to be effective is aerobic exercise. Aerobic exercise is any exercise that gets you breathing quickly, breathing hard. So running, swimming, fast dancing, biking, walking up a mountain, walking rapidly, anything that gets you breathing hard, your brain will just take off. Um, I read an interview with one of these neuroscientists, and he's saying, everybody he knows in the neuroscience community either is a runner or does some sort of aerobic exercise. Um, it is the most powerful thing we can do. But again, half of them die off unless you do other things. So another hugely important thing for your rate of neurogenesis is sleep. Sleep is one of these hugely underestimated uh, factors in health. It turns out that all sorts of uh, health problems are associated with getting not enough sleep. 40% of Americans say regularly they don't get enough sleep. Um, to get enough sleep for most people means seven or eight hours a night. Not that many people get that much. When we don't get enough sleep, what happens is that, first of all, memory cons consolidation happens when we sleep. So when we don't sleep, we don't fully consolidate the memories of the previous day. If you even go one day where you get like three, four hours of sleep, you know the next day you're just fuzzy. You, you can't remember stuff in the same way. There's very dramatic cognitive decline with one day of not enough sleep. But also your rate of neurogenesis goes way down. Your levels of melatonin go down. And higher levels of melatonin also stimulate neurogenesis. <clears throat> the other thing that happens when we sleep is that the brain cleans itself. So they never used to know how the brain detoxified itself. Up until last year, they just discovered this, that there's a system in the brain called the glymphatic system after the glial cells. The glial cells have house-cleaning tasks in the brain and do a lot of the pruning. So in the body, there is the lymphatic system. Right? The lymph system moves throughout our cells and takes out toxins and cleans the body, but it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So they wondered, you know, it's like an aquarium. It builds up residue. You need to have a filter to pull out the toxins. And they didn't know what this was until they finally discovered the glymphatic system last year. And they discovered that when you sleep, actually the cells, the neurons, shrink by about a half. And the brain gets filled with fluid, with cerebral spinal fluid, that flushes it of the toxins that build up, particularly the beta amyloid that accumulates during the day. And beta amyloid is what is, involved, is implicated in Alzheimer's. That's the plaque that forms in Alzheimer's. So during sleep, we, our brain is getting like this shower or this bath. And so, again, you know that feeling when you wake up after three or four hours of sleep and you feel yucky and you take a shower and you still feel kind of dirty like you haven't had a shower even though you've just had a shower? Well, that's your brain is dirty. That point. That, that's the toxins in your brain that is, just hasn't been cleaned out. 
Dirty mind, a dirty brain anyway, yes. <laughs> so there's other factors too. Um, the book goes into that. But I want to go on to some of these other things while we still have some time. Um, <clears throat> the level of the heart, the emotional level. So it turns out that, it probably won't surprise you, that stress slows down the rate of neurogenesis. Stress is deadly for the rate of neurogenesis. But it's not just any kind of stress. I think of that there's two types of stress. There's good stress and bad stress. Good stress is short-term and moderate. Bad stress is chronic and intense. So good stress we need, right? Like, like a muscle. We, we stress a muscle when we exercise it. But then we stop, it breaks down and builds up stronger. And it's the same with stress. Good stress, meaning short-term stress, challenges us, brings forth new capacities, new abilities. We need stress. If we don't have it, we begin to shrivel. Not having enough stress is also a problem. Having a life of deprivation, the brain shrivels, the brain shrinks. Not good. When it comes to the brain, size matters. Right? <clears throat> Bigger is better when it comes to the brain, your own brain. You don't want it shrinking. So <clears throat> good stress actually increases our rate of neurogenesis. Short-term, moderate stress, good challenges, engages the brain, and stimulates neurogenesis. It's almost like the brain is saying, okay, what's going on here? Figure this out. Get some new brain cells going. But bad stress is the type of stress most people have most of the time. Stress is probably the leading killer today, although it never appears on any doctor's certificates, death certificates. Um, but it's involved with <clears throat> cancer, with heart disease, with so many diseases now, and also with slowing down neurogenesis and actually shrinking the brain. So chronic stress is the type of stress most people have, which is just ongoing, 24-7, always plugged in, always available by cell phone, texting, email, constant contact, constant stress. Terrible for the brain. <clears throat> We need to have periods where we can <clears throat> relax and just come back to a homeostatic balance. We need to have times where we are unplugged from the internet. We need downtime. <clears throat> we need, that's one function of exercise. It gets us up, but then ah, we relax. It brings us back to a homeostatic balance. And continual ongoing stress shrinks the hippocampus, is actually neurotoxic. Intense stress kills brain cells in the hippocampus. And ongoing chronic stress, again, the hippocampus shrinks. So <clears throat> if we have stress in our lives, we want to find a way of dealing with it. And just about everybody has stress in their lives. So finding strategies to deal with stress and to come back into a relaxed state where the parasympathetic, excuse me, parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and we can, ah, relax. 
That's hugely important. Um, <clears throat> how are we doing? Okay. The level of mind, just very briefly. So, <clears throat> the mind thrives on learning new things. And there's two times in our life when there's measurable cognitive decline. One is when people graduate from college, and the other is when people retire. Unless they either get a career that involves the mind, you know, teaching professionals or a, a business who are using your mind, something where you're using your mind, there is no cognitive fall off after that. Or with retirement. If you're retired and you're engaged, if your mind is engaged, there is no cognitive fall off. So, <clears throat> learning new things increases our rate of neurogenesis. Not learning new things, the mind begins to sag. Neurogenesis slows down, cognitive capacity goes down. Again, the brain is always changing. So if we're not using it, pretty soon we are going to lose it when it comes to the brain. So there's a lot of hype about brain games and computer games these days. And it turns out that <clears throat> as the research is coming in on this, it's showing that these brain games are actually not very effective. They're helpful for doing that particular brain game, but they don't generalize to other systems. So doing crossword puzzles is helpful for doing more crossword puzzles. Um, up until about 50 crossword puzzles, and after that, it doesn't seem to increase much. Um, <clears throat> so what we want is we want a lot of ways to exercise our brain. We want to cross-train our brain. So reading, writing, even if it's just emails, we want to be using that. Music, using the other side of the brain. Right? We, our left verbal brain we want to use. We also want to use our right nonverbal, um, nonlinear brain as well. Um, learning, becoming a lifelong learner. In some ways, that's really what it's about. That the brain is stimulated by engagement. And when we disengage, we sag. We want optimal stimulation. And optimal stimulation means... Also, not too much TV. People who do three hours or more of TV a day, cognitive decline. You know this. This seems obvious, right? Um, <clears throat> when we use our brain when we're young, we build up something called cognitive reserve. They did a study of nuns who developed Alzheimer's. And they discovered that the nuns who were teachers didn't have Alzheimer's. Then they looked at the brains more carefully, and they discovered that actually they had about as much amyloid plaque as the Alzheimer's ones did, but they didn't have any of the symptoms of Alzheimer's. And so they got them thinking about what happens to the brain when you use your mind in some way. And it turns out that it builds up what's called cognitive reserve, like alternate pathways. Sort of like the internet. If it doesn't go one way, it can go another way. So when we use our brain, we're also building cognitive reserve as well. Um, 
and then the level of spirit. So, <clears throat> for a long time, neuroscience was very much a materialistic science. It was very much reductionistic, just physical processes. And hardly anybody did research on meditation. But then they finally started, there started to be some neuroscientists who were also meditators, who started looking at the brain. And then other people started looking at the brain. And they were amazed to discover what was happening. They, they initially didn't expect that much would happen when they did brain imaging studies of the brain. Because it looks like nothing's happening. The person's just sitting there. But as you all know who have meditated, when you're meditating, a lot is going on. It's a very dynamic process. So it turns out that two particular types of spiritual practice that they've explored so far seem to have a very robust effect on neurogenesis. And in fact, seems to operate along the entire hippocampus. One is mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice, the process of simply paying attention to whatever arises in the moment and allowing that to pass away and being aware of the next thing in the moment. Sometimes you can focus on the breath. Sometimes you can focus on a particular sense. Some practices you just focus on whatever arises in consciousness. You don't do anything. You just watch the whole thing that has a very profound effect on the rate of neurogenesis and a very rapid effect. They thought it would be after years of meditating that they would see an effect. But they discovered that after taking volunteers who did a breath meditation for half an hour in the morning and half an hour at night for eight weeks had measurable effects on the hippocampus. Now, that's quite powerful. The other sort of spiritual practice that has a very powerful effect are heart-opening practices. So love, devotion, bhakti, compassion practices. These also have a profound effect on the whole brain. And one thing that happens with the experience of love is that the neurotransmitter oxytocin is released. It's not that love can be reduced to oxytocin. There's other things going on. But oxytocin is also released. And oxytocin stimulates neurogenesis. Oxytocin also is an anti-stress agent. And so when our stress level goes down, when we feel love, we, feel, we can't feel stress when we're feeling love, right? Love is the ultimate de-stressor. So these heart-opening practices also have a very powerful effect on the brain. Now, <clears throat> I want to say just a word about Alzheimer's before stopping, because Alzheimer's is a huge issue in our society right now. If you go on the Alzheimer's uh, website, you'll see there that they say that right now, one in three seniors dies either with Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. And within a few years, if present trend lines continue, 50% of those reaching the age of 85 will have Alzheimer's. And since most of us here are expected to live to be 85, that gives us a 50-50 chance of developing Alzheimer's. And what's the point of living longer if we don't have our minds here?
Now, also on the Alzheimer's website, it says this is the only major disease for which there's currently no cure, no prevention, no treatment. The pharmaceutical companies have spent billions of dollars at this point, hundreds and hundreds of clinical trials, trying to come up with a drug to either delay it or reverse it or prevent it, and they've come up with nothing, zero, zip, complete, abject failure here. There's nothing that medical science has to offer. So right now, there's no hope in the conventional view of things. However, there's some recent research done from a holistic perspective that's just come out in the past less than a year now that gives hope. So most of the research on the brain is done by pharmaceutical companies or academic researchers looking to discover a patentable drug that they can make a fortune on. That's fine. It's okay. But as a result, very little research gets done from a holistic perspective because almost everything is free. There's no fortune to be made. Well, there's a place here, actually in Marin, called the Buck Institute on Aging that last November published a trial that showed that the memory loss associated with cognitive decline could actually be reversed with actually, it's a very simplified version of what's in the book, this body, heart, mind, spirit approach. That actually they were able to reverse the cognitive decline in people who had had to stop working because of memory problems. They were able to go back to work and work for the two years that they followed them in the study. Again, it was a complete, they didn't call it holistic, that's my word for it. I think they called it a systems approach, but it was diet, physical exercise, emotional stuff, mental stimulation, and meditation as well. And then in March of this year, the British medical journal Lancet published a study in which Finnish researchers did the first randomized controlled study of 1,200 people to show that those who are at risk of cognitive decline could prevent it through, again, doing a very simplified version of what's in the book. So right now, this holistic approach seems to be the only ray of hope for Alzheimer's. Now, Alzheimer's begins decades before you actually show signs of symptoms. Right? In your 40s, it's already happening. Um, it's never too soon to start to try to move into a more neurotoxic lifestyle. Never too soon. So there is hope with Alzheimer's. I think that this holistic body-heart-mind approach is, is actually the only hope right now. And <clears throat> when this original research was done that showed you could increase the rate of neurogenesis by five times, many of the nutrients that have just been discovered in the last few years hadn't been tested on this. So we really don't know what the possibilities are. Is it you can increase the rate eight times, ten times? We don't know. It turns out that a baby's rate of neurogenesis 
is determined by the mother's rate of, it, of neurogenesis. So <clears throat> it's like if you're in your 20s, you can increase your rate of neurogenesis significantly, really significantly. If you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s, you can increase it, again, five times. In later age, you can increase it three to five times. But again, with these extra things they've discovered just in the last few years, we just don't know. It's like we are in the beginnings of a neuro-revolution right now that we, we, we don't really know the end point of. That if you start early enough, what is possible then in your 20s or 40s or 60s? We don't know what optimal old age looks like at this point. Um, the end. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu/publicprograms. slash